This is the Hockey News Podcast. Hello, everybody. It's the Hockey News Live Podcast here. It's trade deadline Monday. We're winding down. It was a little bit of a quiet day, but a lot of deals came in late, including one legitimate old-school blockbuster. We're here to break down all the biggest deals of the day. Welcome, Ken Campbell. Welcome, Ryan Kennedy. It's Matt Larkin here. And, fellas, the first question people love to ask on trade deadline day is, who are the winners and the losers? So that is where we're going to start. I want to hear your winners first. So, Ken, you go first. Give me your number one winner of trade deadline day, but you could also extend it to trade deadline week, let's say. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm going to go with my 1 and 1A winners, and those are Julien Brisebois and Steve Eiserman, the former dynamic duo from the Tampa Bay Lightning that worked together and worked so well together. Uh, I think these two guys were brilliant at the trade deadline. Julien Brisebois somehow got out of salary cap hell and got one of the crown jewels of the trade deadline, got exactly what the kind of player that he needed, um, my collar's a little messed up here. I got to fix that up. Um, he got ex- they got exactly the kind of guy they needed. Um, you know, went out and swung for the fences. Um, you know, and and he started this whole trend of, you know, three way trades so that other teams can take part of the cap hit. Just totally manipulated the salary cap. Totally manipulated the system. Got a player that he needed. Got the one of the crown jewels of the trade deadline, and um, you know moves forward as a as a legitimate. Stanley Cup contender with a A1 quality defensive defenseman uh, on his team. Um, and Steve Eiserman, of course, you know, Steve Eiserman being Steve Eiserman, um, you know, one of the best talent evaluators I think we've ever seen. I'm pretty sure at some point this year, he looked at his roster, he watched his team play, and he watched Anthony Mantha and said, Nope, not part of the solution, never going to be part of the solution. So he gets back. Jacob Rana, who's actually a year younger than Anthony Mantha, if you can believe it. And they, they're going to have his rights for at least another year or two because he's arbitration eligible. Um, and then, you know, a first round pick and a second round pick. I thought it was masterful what Iserman did at the trade deadline in building up some assets uh, for the Detroit Red Wings moving forward. I totally expect the Detroit Red Wings within four or five years to be right back where they were winning Stanley cups. And it's because of moves like these. And for my winner, I'm going to go with the New York Islanders. You know, Lou Lamorello did his damage a little earlier getting Kyle Palmieri and Travis Zajac from the devils. And what I liked in particular about that trade is they really didn't give up that much. Sure. You know, there was a first round pick there. Um, but, you know, Mason Jobs uh, is basically a minor leaguer. He was a college free agent, hasn't really done much offensive damage in the pro game. A.J. Greer, a very interesting power forward, but certainly not somebody that was, like, really knocking on the door for the Islanders. So they didn't give up much. And in return, they got exactly what they needed, just as Ken was mentioning with Tampa and David Savard. You know, the Islanders needed to replace Anders Lee's scoring punch. And, you know, Kyle Palmieri is not going to be the same power forward body, but he can certainly put the puck in the net. And in Travis Zajac, they get a dependable veteran who Lou Lamoureux is very familiar with from his time in New Jersey, a guy that at this point in his career can just be a depth guy, but that's fine because that's how New York kills you. They just roll. And Zajac is the kind of guy that you can plunk in the room. He'll be a good guy and he's not going to make waves. He can help out 
however they need him to. And, you know, when I look at the Islanders right now, that's a team where they're very strong at every position. They didn't need to do a lot, but they got what they needed. And I think they have terrific chemistry on that team. I think Palmieri and Zajac will fit in perfectly. And again, they didn't have to give up that much in order to do so. Excellent. Uh, I have a pick that's it's always going to be polarizing. Anytime you talk about the Toronto Maple Leafs, it's going to be polarizing. But I, I truly, I genuinely believe that they are the winner of this year's trade deadline. I think they understood the opportunity that they have this year. They're off to the best start in franchise history through 41 games, I think on a pace for about 58 wins, 56, 58 wins. And they understand that whether it's fair or not, whether it's an easy division or not, it doesn't change the fact that a Canadian team is guaranteed to emerge from the North. If anything, if the division is that easy, if you want to give the Leafs that, then all the more reason to go all in. So if you paid a little bit too much for Nick Foligno, I don't think it matters. And I compare the trade to the Barkley-Goudreau deal last year for Tampa Bay. I know, obviously, Goudreau's a lot younger. There was term left. But the principle behind it was the same. It was a team that had lost to Columbus the year before in the first round, trying to learn how to become more diverse, how to play differently, how to win ugly, how to win different types of ways. And Tampa, of course, they go they go get Blake Coleman and Barkley Goodrow. Last year, we see Kyle Dubas. He tries to make the team tougher to play against going into the season. You know, TJ Brody and Wayne Simmons and Zach Bogosian, Joe Thornton. I remember the end of season presser last year. Kyle Dubas was quite defensive. It was the most fiery I've ever seen him. And he said something to the effect of, guys, I'm not trying to build my team just one way. I'm willing to, you know, expand my horizons. That's what he's done. And I think this Nick Foligno deal is a continuation of that. Last week on our podcast, I said that the Leafs were the best fit for Foligno because he's defensively sound. He brings a lot of character. And this team, the personality of this Leafs team is so different going into the playoffs this year, yet they haven't sacrificed that offense. They're still one of the elite offensive teams in the league. So I think that's a big win. And the other piece they needed was that backup goaltender. They get David Riddick. And who knows what it means for the future of Freddie Anderson. I think it means we're not going to see him again the regular season. Maybe we never see him play a game as Maple Leaf. It's too early to know. But it is obviously a vote of confidence for Jack Campbell. Again, I said this on our podcast last week. Why not? Goaltending is so fickle right now. If you have a goalie who's good enough to win 11 starts in a row, is there any goalie you could have gone out on and acquired on the market who's going to be better than Jack Campbell? I don't think you know that. So you may as well not mess with the team's juju. Go with the guy who's hot. And I think the Leafs did a good job of understanding exactly what they needed and addressing those holes. So, Ryan, I'm going to give you the floor. Tell me who is your loser of the trade deadline. Well, I'm going to go with the Nashville Predators here. And I don't think they got, you know, stomped on necessarily. I just felt that this is like a a weird team because a month or two ago, we would have said Nashville's dead in the water. They should be sellers. You know, Matthias Ekholm's name was out there. Even Ryan Ellis's name was out there. And and they've really pulled it together, and Chicago's fallen away. So now Nashville is a legitimate playoff team in the Central, though they will have to be cautious about Dallas. Um, and the Preds, they didn't do much. They got Eric Goodbranson from Ottawa for a seventh-round pick in, I think, 2023, which is essentially saying – we don't really care what you give us for Eric Branson. Just it has to be on paper. Um, you know that that seventh round pick is probably going to go through like three different teams before it actually gets used. Um, but you know, like Eric Branson, great guy in the room. Um, you know, character player, big and tough, but he's not good at defense and he's not good at offense. So I'm not really sure, other than being a depth guy what the point is and 
you know, we were sort of talking about this before the broadcast, you know, you know, what should Nashville have done? Should they have been sellers? Should they have gone for more? My, my point is either. Either would have been better because now, you know, you have a team that has won eight of its past 10 games. I would have rewarded them if you thought they had a shot of making some hay in the playoffs. And, and hey, maybe David Boyle looks at this group and says, it's not our year and, and he didn't want to sacrifice more. That's fine. That's totally legitimate. But I would, in that case, I would have liked to see them try to look towards the future and say, hey, we've got a couple of pending UFAs up front. You know, can we get anything for an Eric Halla or somebody of that ilk? Because there were options there. So I just, I didn't like the mushy middle there. I like Ryan, what you, Ryan, what you, what you were saying about Eric. It reminds me of a, of a, of a, of a, of a time and he said, you know, those guys you know, that are really in the room, the only problem is they insist on playing in the games too. So <laughs> I <laughs> like that. Um, for my loser, I'm going to go with the Winnipeg Jets. Um, you know, this is a team, and, and you talked about it, Matt, in the in the North Division being sort of a wild card division. Um, you know, I, I think the Winnipeg Jets in a lot of ways, um, you know, are a team that's built – maybe not to get out of that division, but once a team gets out of that division, I think they're built better than anyone to succeed, including the Toronto Maple Leafs. And, and I just thought that they need, like they've got a great, obviously got a great forward group. They've got the reigning Vezina Trophy, uh, Vezina Trophy winner and still arguably the best goalie in the NHL this year, the guy who's faced the most shots. Um, but this team, I thought, screamed out for a for a Jamie Alexiak or an Alex Goligoski, like a, 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 a guy on the blue line that could really sort of step in and make an impact. They did go out and get Jordy Ben. I don't think it was enough. I would have liked to have seen them do more. I, yeah, like I said, I would have liked to have seen them go out and actually get like a real kind of solid game in, game out impact guy on the blue line, if not one, maybe even two. Um, but they didn't do that. They went out and got Jamie Ben or Jamie Ben, Jordy Ben, um, who I think is okay. Like he'll be a good depth guy, but they needed a they needed somebody to jump in the, into their top four, and you know, or at least challenge to jump into their top four. I don't see Jordy Ben ever being a guy that is going to jump into their top four or even challenge to do that. And I just thought that that was the only piece that this team really, really needed to kind of get out of this division and they didn't, they didn't go out and do it. And I, I don't understand why, like I, I, you know, I mean, Tampa went out and got David Savard. I, you know, if I was Kevin Day off, I would have been like, okay, what is it? What's it going to take? What do you want? You know, <laughs> I mean, that's what I would have done, but I I'm, I'm surprised Winnipeg didn't do more to bolster their defense. For sure. It's a good point. I really thought that Winnipeg was going to be a, an ideal fit for someone like Josh Manson. Maybe the tires were kicked. We'll never know exactly what went down, but uh, I agree. Was, the return was underwhelming, or, or what they brought in was underwhelming. I was also underwhelmed by what the Edmonton Oilers did. And, you know, I, I mean this as a compliment to the Oilers. I know sometimes their fan base, I'm not too popular with them, but I really do mean this as a compliment because I think the Oilers have as good of a chance as anyone when you have arguably two of the top three offensive weapons in the world, including the number one player of his generation. You have a chance to make some noise. And I think what the Oilers needed to do was get another top six forward because you've had situations this year because Kyler Yamamoto's regressed a little bit. You haven't had that absolutely dynamite second line all year long like you had last year. And yes, he's been good in fits and starts, but hasn't been totally consistent. So you've been 
forced at times to load up McDavid and Drysaddle on the same line. And I don't think the Oilers are as dangerous a team when you have to go that nuclear option. So I think if you brought in, you know, whether it was Taylor Hall or, you know, Anthony Mantha, whatever you had to try and do, you could have brought in. I think the Oilers could have diversified their attack. They'd be far more dangerous. Of course, yes, they bring in Dmitry Kulikov, who's going to help them a little bit defensively. That's great. But I do think that Ken Holland needed to do more on the goaltending front. You know, you have Mike Smith, Miko Koskinen, and Alex Stalock. Sure, Mike Smith having a great season. I know. But Mike Smith is close to 40 years old. He's older than me, and I hurt every time I wake up in the morning. And he's pro athlete. It's hard on the body. And we saw last year, Mike Smith was competent in the regular season, reasonably, but the wheels completely fell off in the playoffs. Smith and Miko Koskinen, I think their combined save percentage was 869 or something. And the Oilers with a fifth seed against a 12th seed, they blow it largely because of their goaltending. So going with literally the same tandem this year, I don't think that inspires a ton of confidence right now, especially when you're sharing a division with two teams that have a lot of high-end scorers like Toronto and Winnipeg. And maybe Mike Smith keeps the magic going. The team in front of him is a little bit better, yes, this year defensively. But I would have liked to see, even if you weren't bringing in a legitimate starter, just someone who's, a, who's some extra insurance behind Mike Smith because Miko Koskinen has not proven to be up to the task this season. So I'm, I'm a bit disappointed, only because of the fact that I do think the Oilers have a chance to get to the Final Four. The talent is there. Uh, let's go through some of the bigger deals of the last several days and just kind of get some reactions. We have to talk, of course, about the big blockbuster today that came in relatively late. Anthony Mantha goes to the Washington Capitals for Jacob Rana, Richard Panic, a 2021 first rounder, a 2022 second rounder. All that stuff I mentioned, that's all going to Detroit just for Anthony Mantha. Two guys involved in the trade that were first rounders, of course, Mantha and Brana. So, Ken, we'll start with you. Just give me your reaction to the trade. Who do you like as the winner of this trade? If there is a winner, it could be both. It could be neither. What are your thoughts? Oh, I, th- I think Steve Hydram is one of the, as I said off the top, is one of the huge winners of deadline day uh, because of this trade. Um, you know, I mean, I mean, we keep hearing about how big and how, how much Anthony Mantha can score and everything, but we just never see it for whatever reason, whether it's injury or lack of motivation or, or just, you know, spotty play, um, you know, and, and I mean, analytically, I'm not sure if this guy is not beyond his prime, like he's 26 years old. And if he's certainly not beyond his prime, he's, he's getting there. Um, you know, I mean, they do get Washington does get another big body who can score, which they, they have an awful lot of, and will be really, really like, they'll be nasty to play against uh, in any playoff series. Um, you know, and, and they do get some cost certainty on it. Cause he's under contract for, I think another four years or, another three years after this year, but it's pretty clear to me, Steve Eiserman, who, as I've said, I think is one of the best talent evaluators out there, basically looked at what he had in Anthony Mantha, basically looked at the fact that he had 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 him signed to a long-term deal and said, this guy just is not part of the future here. He's not part of the, he's not part of the, the, um, he's not, he's not part of the answer here. And I, I, I'm thinking back, when was the last time Steve, Steve, Steve Eiserman made an analysis like that? Oh yeah, Jonathan Drouin, the same guy who doesn't have, who has like one goal in thirty something games this year. You know, he made that call on Jonathan Drouin, despite the fact that Jonathan Drouin had a bunch of potential. You know, a little bit of success behind him showed flashes, a lot of like the stuff we see from 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 Anthony Manta. But you know, he made that trade, and I think it's safe to say he absolutely fleeced the Montreal Canadiens by getting Mikhail Sergachev back. 
Um, that's how I kind of look at this one. I, I do see some upside for Mantha. In fact, he's one of my winners at the trade deadline because he gets out of that situation and into a situation where he looks around and sees like Alex Ovechkin, TJ Oshie, you know, a lot of big body guys, Tom Wilson, you know, and he'll be like, yeah, I can probably, I can do something with that, you know, but I still think the fact that Eiserman got that, that, um, return on, on the trade makes him the winner, regardless of what Anthony Manton does in, in Washington. Hmm. Yeah. I thought it was a great haul for Detroit and, you know, those picks are obviously going to be great because if you think about it, you know, the Red Wings might pick first overall this year. Uh, I know that they've had horrible lottery luck recently, but maybe it turns around, but with their own pick, it could be first overall, or at least, you know, top three, top four. And then now they get another pick from Washington, which is obviously going to be later in the round, but that second first rounder, it's always nice to have that flexibility, particularly when you're still rebuilding as the Red Wings are, it's an asset. If there's a guy that you really like, maybe you move up a bit using that that second first rounder. If you feel like you can push things off, then you flip that second first rounder and maybe it becomes a later pick that you can use. You get a couple of picks for it. I, I just love having that flexibility. Um, same goes for the second rounder in 2022. As for Mantha, I, I love the situation that he's in right now because as Ken alluded to, He's not the big dog now. In Detroit, you know, they're rebuilding. They had Dylan Larkin, and and then they basically had Anthony Mantha in their top six, where it's like, hey, it's your job to score. You scored 57 goals in 57 games in your final year of junior with Valdor. Score a bunch for us. And I think it was a lot of pressure for Mantha. He was still figuring out how to round out his game. He was still figuring out you know, how to score in a league where he was no longer the biggest, strongest, fastest guy. And, you know, we've seen some very good performances. He hasn't hit 30 goals yet, but, you know, he's been on track for about that pace in seasons that had been shortened either by, you know, the pandemic or injury or whatever it happened to be. I think in Washington, he can kind of take a breather and say, the pressure's off. It's, it's not all on me. I have the greatest goal scorer in NHL history ahead of me on the depth chart in Alex Ovechkin. I have another big body in Tom Wilson, who is usually in the headlines for doing nasty things, either positively or negatively on the team. And you have you know, a fan favorite in TJ Oshie, who's always throwing his weight around. Those are the other wingers that are basically you know, ahead of Mantha, just in terms of spotlight now. And I think for him, it's the perfect reset. It's the change of scenery where he can relax a bit. He can use his natural talents to help out. And for Washington, you know, like they, they've won a Stanley Cup. They're still in their window. But I'm not convinced that window with this particular group will go on for too much longer. It's maybe a year or two, you know, Seattle expansion draft is looming. Does Oshie go back home to Washington State to join the Kraken? You know, how long does the band stay together with the Ovechkin, Backstrom, John Carlson, Kuznetsov, Oshie core? Um, so throw your chips in. I think GM Brian McClellan made the right call here. You've got a couple of years to try to get another title before you have to reset and, you know, bid Bon Voyage to Ovechkin, put his jersey in the rafters, get your ticket for the Hall of Fame. 
let's see what Mantha can do with you. And the other interesting thing, it's not just the insulation on the depth chart from Alex Ovechkin. It's now being able to practice with Alex Ovechkin, learn from Alex Ovechkin, the greatest goal scorer of all time, arguably. And who knows what Mantha will absorb in that culture compared to what he's had to go through in Detroit. You know, when I look at this trade, I like to just take Mantha and Verana, just the two of them, isolate them for a second. And I love the trade for both players. You know, Mantha, like I said, he's being part of just a nonstop losing culture in his NHL career. We saw last year, his pace last year was something like 30 plus goals, 70 plus points. He was really breaking out analytically, he was on pace to do some of the best work of his career. He did regress this year, but we know the talent's always been there. It's never been a question. It was always, you know, even going back to his time at Baldor, it was just a question of could he get the consistency at the NHL level? He's always going to be there engaged with the intensity you need to succeed consistently at the NHL level. I think those same questions have persisted with Detroit, but the talent's there. So now you put them with a group of Stanley Cup winners. Their core is very much still intact. And you're going to have, you know, probably if Genny Kuznetsov is your center and maybe Nicholas Backstrom, if they juggle the lineup, there's so many different permutations. But no matter how you slice it, Mantha's going to be a top six forward there. That's why, you know, given the price they paid, he better be. If he's not in the top six, then yikes. So he's going to have a legitimate top-tier playmaking center passing the puck. Maybe you get some top power play time for Mantha as well, which is very exciting. He's a left shot as well, so it's not like he's going to take Ovi's spot. He could be on the other side. Who knows what they're going to do? So I get it. It's a great opportunity for Anthony Mantha. I wouldn't be surprised if a few years from now we're saying, oh, my God, that was just a, such a boon for Mantha's career. What a trade for the Capitals. At the same time, I think we are going to say the same thing about Jacob Brana. I know he was not a Peter Laviolette favorite in Washington this year, but if you looked at what he did the last couple seasons before this one, on a per-60 basis at 5-on-5, five five, he was one of the most efficient goal scorers in the league. So you're taking a guy who's tremendously efficient, and now you're giving him more ice time. Now you're giving him the biggest opportunity he's ever had. Ever had. And I think for Rana, maybe he's going to flourish even more and blossom into a top-tier player because he's never gotten that opportunity. You could argue, well, maybe he was more insulated. Tougher. Fair enough. But I still think the talent's there with him. He's absolutely a first-round caliber talent. That's why he went in the first round. So I think he's going to have a chance to become a star in Detroit. The thing is, as you can guess by sort of that quick breakdown of both guys by me, that's an even trade, one for one. I don't understand why Washington had to kick in a first-round pick as well, a second-round pick as well. I know there's the cost certainty of Antimantha, but it's not like Vrana is a UFA. He's still under team control. To me, that's an even trade. Vrana had a, arguably a better track record of recent success. So I just don't get why Washington had to pay so much. Because of that, I consider Detroit the winner of that trade. Let's talk Taylor Hall. And Ryan, I'll, I'll go with you first here. So the Boston Bruins get him for, you know, I don't, I'm not even going to say 90 cents on the dollar. I'm going to say like 73 cents on the dollar. You get Taylor Hall and Curtis Lazar going to Boston for Andre York, 2021 second round pick. So what are your thoughts on this trade, Mr. Kennedy? I just didn't get it. Um, you know, I know Taylor Hall struggled this year, but everybody on Buffalo struggled. You know, people talked about his lack of goals, but, I mean, Jack Eichel barely scored at all, and he's Jack Eichel. I just think – and I know Taylor Hall had a, you know, uh, a modified no-trade clause. There were certain teams he didn't have to go to, but we all knew this. You know, GM Kevin Adams knew that. Um, I didn't understand the timing of the trade. You know, it went down basically before midnight last night. There was certainly more time to see if there was other suitors to go and say, hey, um, Boston's offering me a second. I would like a first. What can you do 
Florida, Nashville, whoever else was in the mix. I don't know. I'm just throwing out names that uh, could have used him. And, you know, they they also throw in Lazar, who, you know, he's kind of a tweener at this point. He can kind of be a depth guy for you. You know, Bjork is under contract for a couple of years, so there's some certainty there. But, I mean, Anders Bjork is the kind of guy that you can kind of find players like that anywhere, you know? Sort of bottom six guys that have a bit of offensive talent, but not enough to be difference makers. I just felt like this was a huge asset for Buffalo. I mean, we were all talking about Taylor Hall, and I know people were down on him this season, but if you saw the prices fetched by some other players, to me, how Buffalo didn't get a first is just incomprehensible. I Like I say, I, I know there were some strings attached here, but... To me, it just it looks like a rookie GM who got a little spooked and pulled the trigger too quickly. Well, I, they didn't get a first because obviously no one was willing to give up a first. It's it's like my house. You know, I may think my house in Toronto now is worth $2 million, but my house is worth what somebody's willing to pay for it. And that's the way this went down, in my opinion. I've been very vocal on Twitter at the very least uh, saying, I do not understand the fascination with Taylor Hall. Um, since he was the MVP of the league, he has done virtually nothing. Um, you know, I mean, and, and I, I mean, yeah, okay. But, you know, I taught, they talk about his shooting percentage. Okay. Well, his cumulative shooting percentage five on five over the last three years with three different teams is 5.7%. When exactly does it stop being bad luck? When exactly does it stop being having lousy players around him? And when does it start being about the player himself and what he hasn't done over the last three years or what he has done over the last three years, which is nothing, nothing. He has added nothing to three teams. And I, I, I do not understand what the fascination was with this guy, why people thought he was going to fetch a first round pick. There is in my mind, in my opinion, personally, there is not a competent GM in the NHL that would have given up any more than what the Boston Bruins gave up for Taylor Hall. That was that was fine return, in my opinion. I mean, if 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 Toronto wants to go out and spend a first round pick on Nick Felino, that's on Toronto. Okay, they they identified a need and they wanted to fill that need. Taylor Hall sure wasn't filling that need, but Mark, or, but uh, Nick Felino was going to, and they put a premium on that and they paid they paid heavily for it. I don't think. I don't think get. I don't think, you know. I, I for me, I would have rather gone for Nick Felino, Kyle Palmieri, any number of guys before I would have even come close to going for Taylor Hall. So to me, I thought it was pretty fair value—a second and a and a whatever they got. Um, you know, to me, it just Taylor Hall is one of those guys that has fallen off the map, and it's not Kevin Adams' fault that he really spectacularly underperformed this year. And, you know, I mean, we can throw Kevin Adams under the bus all we want, but, like, there were multiple teams in on this trade, and this was the best offer he had. You know, I mean, if there would have been a better offer out there, he would have taken it. If there would have been a team willing to give up a first-round pick for Taylor Hall, there would the Buffalo Sabres would be owning another first round pick right now. It just wasn't the case. It never was going to be the case and it shouldn't have been the case. Mm -hmm. And it's tough. You know, I do wonder 
could Kevin Adams, like you said, Ryan, have waited until today, till the 11th hour? But I guess it's your first trade deadline as a GM. Do you want to play that game of chicken? You know, maybe Don Sweeney said, no, we're, we'll, this is our price, and you can you can try and hold out for a better offer, but then we're going to walk away. We're going to go after someone else. We're going to go after Sam Bennett. Who knows what might have been said in the moment? So maybe the thought of walking away with nothing for Taylor Hall was just too terrifying after, you know, we spent $8 million to sign him. And I'm wondering if that's why that move was made basically last night. I don't know if it was technically this morning, but I consider it last night. Uh, for the Bruins, you know, it's pretty cheap rental. And I think what makes that landing spot so special is that there's not going to be a ton of pressure on Taylor Hall at the price that Boston got. But also, he's not going to disrupt that first line, the perfection line. They get you know permanently, I think, reunited. And, now you have what Boston's desperately needed, that secondary scoring. This year and last year, the perfection line was scoring 47-plus percent of Boston's goals. And now maybe Taylor Hall, you know, even if Taylor Hall isn't heart trophy Taylor Hall, it's not going to take, you know, all due respect to what you've gotten from Nick Ritchie and Jake DeBrusque, it's not going to take much for Taylor Hall to still be an upgrade over them on a nightly basis. And I, I could see, you know, there being some good chemistry with him, David Krejci, maybe Craig Smith on the right side. You at least... The floor for Taylor Hall, you're still going to get a legitimate second-line winger. And if something awakens in him in this winning culture with guys who have been to cup finals, some of them have won Stanley Cups, maybe you get 90% of the old Taylor Hall unlocked, and then you're laughing if you're the Bruins. But at the price they paid, you only have to get a respectable version of Taylor Hall. You know, if you get the Taylor Hall that was in Arizona last year, that's fine. That's what Boston needs. They need secondary scoring. They didn't need primary scoring. And the price they paid is for secondary scoring, so I think it's a good trade for the Bruins. We've touched a little bit on Nick Foligno, what it means for the Leafs, but just, uh, Ryan, tell me what you think of the trade overall. It could be from a Columbus perspective or Toronto's, but just give me your thoughts on the Foligno trade, which was Foligno and Stefan Newsom to Toronto, 2021 first round pick and a 2022 fourth to Columbus in San Jose facilitating the trade. It's a 2021 fourth round pick. Yeah, I thought it was a, a nice tidy bit of business for both sides. You know, in Foligno, Toronto gets a, you know, sort of top six winger, uh, good defensively, obviously a physical guy, great leadership as he was captain of the Columbus Blue Jackets and pretty much every story you hear about Nick Foligno uh, starts with character. You know, this is a guy that has been to the playoffs and had some success recently. He's, he's pretty observant in terms of uh, in past years. I think he's the perfect fit where you put him in there all of a sudden, they have so much experience between him and Joe Thornton and you know Jason Spezza and Wayne Simmons, guys that can surround Austin Matthews and Mitch Marner and William Nylander and, and help show them the way uh, to a long playoff drive uh, without sort of competing for the same ice time. You know, Stefan Nason, obviously, he's a depth guy, big body. You know, you're not going to see him unless things go super pear-shaped. Um, but, you know, it, it, it all gets thrown in there. I think, you know, Toronto could afford to give up those picks because I think they had like 11 or 12 picks last year. Like they really sort of filled their boots. And, you know, what we've seen already is, is some of those picks are already looking like some pretty nice sleepers. You know, VT Mietinen was a real difference maker with St. Cloud State who went to the NCAA final before falling to UMass. And, uh, and he actually pinged one off the crossbar that right at the beginning of the game, it could have changed the whole complexion. But he was a nice uh, depth pick that's already looking pretty nice. Toby Niemelo is one of the best defensemen at the World Juniors this year playing for Finland. So 
you know, they had Rodan Amirov. They didn't have to lose Nick Robertson. They didn't have to part with Rasmus Sandin. So I thought really nice for them. And for Columbus, you know, I mean, Yarmo Kekalainen saw the writing on the wall. This was not going to be their year. He gets some really nice future assets. And for a Columbus team that hasn't had a lot of draft picks in the past couple of years, I think it's nice for them to sort of restock and try to get some guys that, you know, I, I wouldn't even say fit the Blue Jackets mold because I feel like they need to sort of expand what a Blue Jacket is. And, you know, they've begun to do that with guys like Liam Foody, who's like super fast skill guy. Um, I, I think they need more high-end talent and the picks they got from Toronto will help facilitate that. Yeah, I feel like, guys, I feel like we've been talking about the trade deadline forever because we probably have. But I do recall very early in when we started talking about the trade deadline, probably a month or ago or six weeks ago, I said, if I were the Toronto Maple Leafs, and you can go back and look at this and look it up, guys. I said, if I were the Toronto Maple Leafs, I would be calling the Columbus Blue Jackets to find out what it takes to get Nick Foligno. And I think I love this deal from Toronto's perspective. I think this deal is a, is a home run. You know, Kyle Dubas has sent a message to his team and to his fan base that we are in it to win it. And this is the kind of guy you win with. You know, I mean, I, I just, there's nothing that this guy can't do. He can play the wing. He can, he can, he can, he could play with, he could play with Mitch Marner and, and Austin Matthews on the top line it, and it, he wouldn't be out of place. And, you know, you get into a playoff series against the, the, the Winnipeg Jets. And if, if uh, Sheldon Keith tells, tells Nick Foligno, well, your only job is to shut down Mark Shifley and Nick, Nikolai Ehlers, you know, or, or not both of them, but you know, one of those guys, um, he'll do it. And he may not even get a point in the whole series. He may not even get a shot in the series, but he'll happily do it. He'll do it very, very well. He'll do it very productively and efficiently, and he'll be totally low maintenance in doing it. You know, he can play anywhere in the lineup. He can play the wing. He can take face-offs. He, you know, I mean, he can he can kill penalties. I, I mean, he's he's exactly, in my opinion, what this team needed. This team had enough skill, had enough panache, had enough of all of those other things. What they needed was a foot soldier who could really play. I mean, and with all due respect to Wayne Simmons, um, you know, they needed an upgrade on that. I, I, I think this was a brilliant move by the Toronto Maple Leafs. I think it's going to pay huge dividends for them uh, down the stretch and in the playoffs. And, and from Toronto's perspective, it was a home run. And with the way this team has played this year, you know, the confidence they have, the sort of magic they've captured this year, you don't want to upset that. You don't want to change the team chemistry. So in Felino, you have a guy who's known for his extremely positive effect on team chemistry, very well liked as a leader. He's been in the community. He's won awards for the charity work he's, he's done. And he has all the characteristics that you get from the son of an NHL. He knows how to carry himself, you know, coming from the Felino family. And I think he's the last type of person that's going to disrupt team chemistry. If anything, he's just going to augment it. I think I've said enough about that trait, so I'll move on. Uh, let's I went do to high school with his mom. And I went to high school with his mother. Whoa, cool story, bro. <laughs> and there's a comment that says, completely agree with the gray-haired guy on call on Hall. He's being generous. He's saying you have you have uh, uh, gray hair, and it's, it's really white. It's actually white. It's actually just white. It's Steve Martin White, okay? Uh, so 
Let's talk David Savard. That trade happened over the weekend, but I still think it was a trade of consequence, especially when there weren't many high-end rental blue liners on the market. David Savard and Brian Lashoff go to Tampa Bay. 2021 first-rounder, 2022 third-rounder to Columbus. Detroit comes in to facilitate 2021 fourth-round pick to Detroit. So, Ken, give me your thoughts on the David Savard trade, and do you think Tampa Bay got the piece it needed? I think they absolutely got the piece they needed, and that, that was why I had Julian Breesbaugh as one of my winners as well. Um, you know, I, th I felt like everybody had to, in this trade deadline, kind of had to bolster their lineup to keep up with the lightning and then the lightning go out and get one of the best guys that's out there on the trade market i mean julian breezebaugh is a genius um you know i mean i don't think there's any i don't think there's any dispute about that the way he's manipulated the salary cap the way he's found loopholes in you know making deals for players um you know i mean this is a team that i mean they're gonna get the best trade deadline addition in the whole league when the playoffs start they're going to get nikita kucherov back i mean so that's i mean that that to me is is right there is is enough of a of a of a uh, an upgrade but i i think you know obviously getting a guy like david savard you know you, you know you can see it like that game against columbus last year the first game of the playoffs that went to you know whatever triple overtime or whatever you know i could just see david savard playing in a game like that and logging you know 47 minutes you know and j just being that shutdown guy and being that guy that they they really need to to shut other teams down and i think you know tampa's grown a lot as a as a team as an organization in the at, since being ousted in the first round i think they've really matured and they've their game has matured and i think they realize that they've got to win those games that they're not comfortable playing. And they're way more comfortable playing those games now. And a guy like David Savard doesn't come in and now it's like a big culture shock to him because this is a team that likes to play at Lucy Goosey. This is a team that's, you know, really sort of, sort of improved itself in that respect. And I expect him to just be another great addition to that. I, I think he makes them definitely puts them right at the top of the, um, of the heap in terms of Stanley cup favorites. Yeah, I kind of feel bad for Carolina and Florida because those are two teams that have really built themselves up well this year and look poised to strike. And then it's like, yeah, you're probably not getting out of the division. Sorry. Tampa Bay is getting back a hard trophy winner and uh, a fan. And then they just added a great defensive defenseman who blocks shots and, you know, he'll fit in pretty seamlessly. I totally agree with Ken there. You know, David Savard, fantastic pickup for Tampa Bay. You know, they have probably a leading Norris Trophy candidate in Victor Hedman, who, of course, has already won the Norris Trophy in his young career. And, you know, they have Andre Vasilevsky in net, who is one of the most consistent elite netminders in the NHL. And we know they can score. So they're super poised to maybe go back to back here in the playoffs. And I always like when teams uh, such as Tampa Bay add guys like that at the deadline or you know guys that haven't won it before because it gives you somebody to root for even if he's the new guy it's like let's do it for savvy we've all got our rings uh let's get savvy a ring because that's definitely going to be his nickname i don't think there's any question about that um and then again from columbus's perspective much like the felino trade you know the writing was on the wall uh, you know, Savard was a great asset. They dealt him. They got a first rounder. Columbus now has three first rounders in this draft. And funny enough, the last time Columbus had three first rounders in a draft, it actually didn't work out very well. Um, 
But having said that, it's a new crew, uh, and you know, hopefully they'll hit on their picks better than they did that first time. You know, none of the picks are going to be super high, but again, you can move up and down. And, you know, just having that flexibility, uh, I think, is great. And for a team that hasn't drafted a lot in previous years, uh, I feel good for the Blue Jackets scouts. Uh, I feel good for Yarmo Kekalainen. and he can really kind of put a stamp on this draft and start to rebuild the Blue Jackets, look towards the future and say, okay, what do what kind of core do we think we have? What's this team going to look like in five years? How can we improve on what we've done in the past sort of two, three years? So I think it's an exciting time for Columbus, even though they've taken a step back. And now we'll just see if Columbus picks somebody in the first round that anyone has heard of and then people <laughs> with their notes, but hey, they're going to get multiple shots at it, so I'm sure they'll do it this time. And it's funny, Ryan, you mentioned the win it for so-and-so factor, because on Saturday, I was talking to Victor Hedman 10 minutes before they got Savard, and I asked him, like, how do you, how are you guys finding that motivation? Because you don't necessarily have that guy who hasn't won it before on the team. And what he said was, you know, or part of the thing we, we talked about was because of COVID, that the Lightning didn't really get to celebrate in the normal way other than the parade. And he was saying, to my surprise, he has family back home in Sweden that he still hasn't even seen since before the pandemic started. He didn't get to, you know, show them the cup, all that kind of stuff. So there's that motivating factor already fueling the Lightning. And then a few minutes later, like hung up the phone, and then David Savard gets traded there. So now you have that extra layer of win it for so-and-so, fueling the team that I think a lot of us are, are starting to feel like is the Stanley Cup frontrunner when you're getting Kucherov, of course, as the equivalent of the best the best trade deadline acquisition. The only thing, of course, is Steven Stamkos. We have to hope he's going to be okay because even if it's a minor injury with Stamkos, at any given moment there's always a threat that you find out that he's torn some muscle and he's out for the year. So for now, we're treating it as minor, and you hope for the Lightning's sake that they haven't lost him long-term, but it's something that does bear watching. As for Savard, though, I do love what he brings to the table. He's sort of a, you know, true shutdown defenseman. He's got great size, but he's not, you know, he's not a turret out there. He can move. He can move. He can, he's, he's reasonably mobile for a guy his size, and I think the key for Savard, what he brings to the table, is what he can bring to the penalty kill, because this has happened in Tampa Bay three years in a row. They're in the top three least disciplined, least disciplined teams in the league in terms of Penalty minutes per game, and I think that's why it was so important to bring in Coleman and Gaudreau last year to really help with that penalty. And then David Sebastian and the same skill set to So very important acquisition. Before we go, I want to talk quickly about a couple of contract contract uh, extensions that we're now One of them is one of in LA. LA. I wrote about this myself, about myself. Uh, at length. At length. And, I'm hearing an echo. Are you guys hearing my own voice echoing? Yeah, I'm hearing a bit of one with me earlier too. Yeah, but keep her yeah. going. Yeah. We can we can make out what you're saying. Okay. Same Hopefully trouble as usual, so we're good. Okay. Yeah, but outside yeah, of my first thing about this trade, this trade for or Kings is you know we just part of trade. Kind of they trade Tyler Toffoli, they trade Jake Muzzin. And you kind of end the rebuild there with that trade. But then the next day, you re-sign Alex Ifello. I think it's a very important indicator of a changing of the guard. You're shipping out the old guard, but you're re-signing someone because you can't go forward with your next generation of prospects. The Kings have an amazing prospect group, but you have to have some veterans to sort of usher you into the next era. Alex Ifello right now, he's playing on the first line. He's playing over 20 minutes a game. He's getting lots of special teams work. Very important piece, but he's coming to check out in a couple of years. Second line left winger, third line left winger. If all of your, your forward prospects are better, Samuel Fagino, they all come through. 
in front, you have Quentin Byfield coming, Alex Turcotte. So ideally, that generation of prospects is going to rise up, and your veterans are going to become more role player types. And because Ayafalo is very good defensively, that's, to me, Rob Blake looking ahead and understanding that this team is close to contending. So to me, I say it, and it sounds like kind of a cheap hot take, but I really do mean it. They ended the rebuild on Sunday night with the Carter trade. They started phase two by re-signing Ayafalo uh, on Monday. Ryan, do you agree with that take? Is it a hot take, or do you think the Kings are now moving on to the next thing? No, I think that makes a lot of sense. And for me, I, it's like four times four was like a little much. Um, but, you know, it's, it's kind of good to put faith in guys. And IFL, you know, undrafted, uh, college free agent, made good. Uh, it's always nice to see that because, you know, frankly, as much as we love to talk about college free agency season, you don't usually get guys that can play on your first line, even if you are a bad team, uh, going that route. Uh, but IFL coming out of uh, a Minnesota Duluth program that, as we have seen in the past couple of years, is just so good and, and churns out so many good, structured, disciplined players. You know, it, it's nice to have guys like that in your system that, under you know, even though IFL didn't win a championship during his time with the Bulldogs, you know, they, they went pretty far. And, you know, he understands what it takes to go on long runs. And yeah, I would agree with you just, you know, based on his age, he's a good sort of connective tissue guy in my mind where, like you said, you know, he's on the first line now. He's not a first line guy, but, you know, he can sort of hold that spot warm as other players move up. And, you know, I, I suppose, you know, by the end of four years, you sort of assess and it's not that long uh, of a time for a guy that's still in his 20s. Um, but yeah, nice, nice little bit of business. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm okay with the, I'm okay with the IFL signing. Um, you know, he's what, what would he max out as a 20 goal, 45 point guy, something along those lines, maybe, maybe one of the, yeah. What's that, Matt? This year is, is like, is yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, he's probably a 20 goal, 45 point guy with the, with the possibility of maybe one or two of those years, him overachieving and getting a bit more $4 million, four years for that. I'm okay with that. That's, that's fine. And I think, I think that statement that it makes that, you know, we aren't going to be, you know, we're, we're, you know, I, I think, I think it's big when you can make that statement that you're, you're no longer the farm team for the rest of the NHL. Like, like you do want to keep your guys there. You do want to build something, build something, and have something, and have something, and have something, talent there rather than every year. Veterans go out the door and it's like, okay, when are we going to start getting better? And I think that, that, you know, Rob Blake has put the line in the sand. Yeah, this is this is where it's good. This is where it starts, sort of thing. The Scott Lawton one, I just like a five-year contract in this economy. I, to me, that whole contract and that player is just like meh, meh. Like he's a meh player on a meh team. He's been meh his whole career. Meh, meh, meh. That's all I can say about that. Three years or five years at three million dollars. Meh. Whatever. I guess that's okay. I don't know. Like, hey, hey, I don't hey. Know. He's, a, he's a milksill. Be nice to him. Okay. okay. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry there, Steven. Get, get your yeah. face out of here. Um, yeah. I just, I don't get, like, I guess I'm okay with them signing him, but five years seems like a long time for a guy who's basically a third line guy. Yeah. I didn't mind it because 
you know, he can you know, kill penalties, throws hits, you play center, you can play the wing. He has 17 points this year, they're all even straight. Um, and, and again, for me, it's like $3 million. That's that's not much. You know, the, the term, I, I think for the Flyers, it's a bit of a recognition that this was an off year. It was a bad year. They still might make the playoffs. Probably not, but they might. You know, and teams were asking about Lawton. So this was at least them saying, okay, like if we get Carter Hart back on track, we're a playoff team and a pretty decent one. And they have some interesting decisions coming up in the coming years. Like they're going to have to make a decision on Claude Giroux. They have to make a decision on Sean Couturier. You know, they have some big name veteran forwards that are approaching unrestricted free agency. And they probably can't keep them all. So you've got some good guys coming up. You know, Joel Farabee, Travis Konechny, obviously already there. You know, Nolan Patrick's trying to find his way. Got Morgan Frost. Um, you know, Jay O'Brien had a pretty nice bounce back year in the NCAA. So, again, to me, he's one of those connective tissue guys where you need those guys in, in their late 20s. And uh, for the, the term might be a bit long, but the, the price for me was right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think it's kind of strange, you know, from both sides. Because if you think, you know, as Ken said, if, if Scott Lawton is mad, or he calls, Ken, Ken used the term meh. It sounds like correct term is but if you believe that Scott Lawton is sort of a, you know, marginal player and he's going to always be a bottom six or even fourth line guy, then, you know, it's a strange, it's a strange price to pay because, you know, you can get those guys every year on entry level prices and not paying them $3 million a year. If you believe that Scott Lawton it has shown signs of breaking out to be more, which he has in the past year, then from Scott Lawton's perspective, he's kind of pulling a Cali Yarncrock and I'm like, come on, man, where's the confidence? You could be more than this. You could, you're, you're locking yourself up in the prime of your career for just $3 million a year when you're showing signs that you could, you know, become a legitimate middle six guy who's a disruptor who I think could price himself into a, a different tier. So I kind of, whatever way it breaks, there's one side for which I don't really get it. Uh, I don't know why either side had to make this deal today. I, I, I guess it's a way of sending a message. Hey, we're not trading you on deadline day. But I still find it a bit strange. Uh, maybe they're just sort of splitting the difference. They think he's going to be a third-line player for the balance of his career, the prime of his career, I guess so. But uh, that concludes the Trade Deadline Day live show. Thanks so much for watching, everyone listening, and for commenting. We've been reading your comments. Lots of great comments. Thank you. We'll be back. I'll be back later this week for the Fantasy Podcast. I'll go through the Trade Deadline fallout. We'll decide who gained and lost value. And the regular style podcast will return next week. Thank you, everybody. Enjoy your evening. Thank you for listening to the Hockey News Podcast. Make sure to check out THN.com slash subscribe to get issues of the Hockey News Magazine delivered right to your mailbox.